If you remain standing with me, uh, we are finishing up our sermon series on James. Uh, this is chapter 5. There's only five chapters uh, in the book. And so this is Christian wisdom literature to teach the early church how to live and to teach us how to live today. Let's share in God's good word together. Meanwhile, friends, wait patiently for the master's arrival. You see, farmers do this all the time, waiting for their valuable crops to mature, patiently letting the rain do its slow but sure work. Be patient like that. Stay steady and strong. The master could arrive at any time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Always with you what cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. There is no try. There is no try. How true is that? Friends, Yoda in Hebrew, Yoda, means the knowing one. The one who knows. Yada means to know intimately, like a husband and wife know each other. So yada, yada, yada is to know closely. Yoda is the one who knows. So you pay attention to Yoda. And he says, we must unlearn that which we have learned. And that is absolutely true then and now. The world will tell you that you have to hustle for your worth. Jesus says, you are worthy because you are mine. I created you, and you look like me. I live within you. Every person you lock eyes with is worthy of your best intentions, uh, praise, honor, grace, forgiveness, power. Different. We must unlearn what we have learned. The world would tell you that success looks like this. Power, prestige, notoriety, fame. The Christian life teaches that true greatness looks like a towel. And a bowl. And washing feet. Doing what needs to be done for those that you love. We must unlearn what we have learned. And that's what James is doing. And and James is doing it with an incredible amount of passion and power. Because he's doing this uh, 16 years after Jesus has died and been resurrected. So if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And for five weeks in a row, I'm going to start like this. James speaks not to individuals, but to the Christian community of faith in 49 AD. Now, a few weeks ago, I had a friend of mine say, Mark, you've been saying this for three weeks now. I still don't get it. Why, why is this important? And here's the thing. If you read James, if you read Jesus' teaching, quite frankly, uh, as an individual... And you try to do the things that Jesus says that you are to do as a follower of his, you cannot do it. You can't do it as an individual. When Jesus says, care for the poor, can any one of us care for all the poor people you're going to encounter probably even this week? No, you can't. But we can. As a collective, we can. As a community, we can. When Jesus says, care for the orphan and the widows in your midst, can any of us care for all the kids in foster care that are in our county right now as a family? No, not as an individual. But as a collective of Christians, we can. Pope Francis, about this time last year, about the refugee crisis, said very bluntly, if every Roman Catholic family throughout Europe would, would take in one refugee family, um, mainly Muslim families, there would be no refugee crisis in Europe. Like that. You see, it's about what we do, what we are called to do as a collective, as a community, in our own family uh, of faith here, uh, when there's orphans and widows. 
no one family can take care of the people, even in our own church community, um, that have been orphaned uh, or have been widowed. But together, we can. I love what happened out here again this year. Uh, More than $2,000 taken up at the Christmas offering uh, goes to help um, schools uh, and teachers that need help in their classrooms. And together, we can do that in in ways that would be much more difficult for any one family to do. More than 200 um, bags for 200 different classrooms over at Heartland and, and Frontier are there now because of what we can do. Do you see the difference? It's a big difference. Some of you are like, no, I still don't see the difference. It's been a long week at school. Okay, hang with me. So it's important that we understand this is something we do together. Now, what is different in James' day than it is today, in some ways, is something called the parousia. Will you say that with me? The word is parousia. Now, what this means is the coming or arrival in the scriptures of Jesus to establish God's rule on earth, where what Jesus wants done is done. We call that the kingdom of God. Now, if you weren't talking biblically, a parousia is when the king comes back right? Whenever the, the king, the ruler comes back. And, and so what James understood and, and his community understood is that Jesus is coming by the end of the week. Jesus is coming on Tuesday is how they understood it in, in ways that we don't, okay? And so this, this changes everything. So when Paul writes or James writes, hey, look, if, if, you're, if you're not married, don't worry about it. Just, just stay unmarried because Jesus is coming back Tuesday, and if you are married and your husband's on your last nerve, don't worry about it. Jesus will come back Tuesday. you got three more days. Like, you can make it. Okay? So they're saying stay where you are. Don't make big life changes. Don't make big promises because Jesus is coming back. Now, to get a sense of this, this was really common in James' day and in Jesus' day. Uh, this is a, a portrait of a king, a ruler, coming back. And so what would happen is, they, particularly if you were under the Roman province, you would see Caesar and these other groups leave Go and take over a territory and come back with spices and clothes and statues and gold and jewelry and all sorts of wonderful things that they had raided and looted and brought back to the people. So when we understand Jesus as the coming king, this is what they thought of. That Jesus, when he comes, everything's made right. Peace is on earth. The crooked places are made straight. The, you know, all the deaf are here and the, the blind see and the lame walk. And, and every, it's a good time when the king comes back. It's a really good time. They, they couldn't wait for Jesus to come back. We should have this kind of expectation. When, when Jesus comes back, it's a great thing. The other side of that is, sometimes the king has asked you or given you responsibility over things while he was away. And when he comes back, he says, so, you know that thing I asked you to do when I left four years ago? How'd it go? And for some people, they're like, great, give me the gold. And for other people, like, man, I wish you were not going to ask about that. Because, you know, this caring for the poor thing, I I haven't done that yet. This forgiving my neighbor, I haven't done that thing yet. This thing about letting my yes be yes and my no be no, I I haven't gotten to that quite yet. But make no mistake, friends, the king is coming back. And it's supposed to be good news, really good news for us. And here's the thing. What's different for us is that we don't, many of us do not really believe that Jesus is coming back on Tuesday. But let's just play with it for a second. What if he did? I mean, how would your life look different this afternoon and Monday if you knew that Jesus was going to be back at noon on Tuesday? Like for me, I'm not mowing my lawn. I mean, not between now and Tuesday. I mean, if he doesn't come back, I'll probably hit it Wednesday. But, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, that's not how I'm spending my time, right? So, so if you were convinced that Jesus would come back at noon on Tuesday, what would, what would be different? And it's a pretty good way to live, really. 
Because one of the things that, that we see as clergy that many people don't is that you don't know when you're going to see Jesus. It may be that he's not coming back to you, but you may be going to him. Nobody knows that. So it's a really good way to live because you just don't know. And so Jesus' little brother James says it like this. All the workers that you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. Now, let me, let me just let, let you off the hook for a second. I'm going to talk about myself here. For me, when I started the church, I would knock on doors and I'd ask people if they wanted to be a part of the dream known as Acts 2. Most people said no. Um, but, you know, one or two out of 500 would say yes, maybe. And we would get going. And, and that was really hard. But you know what I didn't deal with at all? I never wondered what happened to all the staff that I didn't have. Because I didn't have any staff. It was just me. Right? I mean, if things didn't go well, I didn't have any responsibility to anybody else. That's not true today. As a church that worships about 600 on average, we've, we've got a staff in the double digits. And so it makes a big difference to me how those staff are treated. I have a responsibility that they make a livable wage. That if they work here, they're treated fairly, treated honestly, uh, and, and treated well if they give their life to the ministry here alongside us. That's important. And, and so I, I have to read this as a manager. Now, some of you are managers. Some of you manage hundreds of people. Some of you manage thousands of people. And, and it makes a big difference, James says. Jesus is saying through his brother, what goes on under our authority, and under people who set salaries, people who set vacation, people who set health benefits. All of this is important, Jesus is saying. So the groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the master's avenger's ears. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it is a fatter-than-usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. Okay? Now, you may be saying, oh, what, what does this mean? It means this. Make right today those we have wronged. So make right, what, what's the main word? Today. Don't wait another day because you don't know when you're going to see Jesus. So if you are in a position of authority and power and you oversee people, it's important that you make right today those that you have wronged. Any of us in that spot? And some, some of you are right there with me. It's important that we look at what we do. Now, many others of you in the room are like, whew, that's not me, right? I am the one who has been wronged. And, and by the way, um, you can put yourself in either category because I have a district superintendent over me and I have a bishop over me, I have a cabinet over me. And so I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's on them. Now, that's easy to do. And so if you've been wronged, James continues. He says, wait patiently. Don't take matters into your own hands. Wait patiently for the master's arrival. You see, farmers do this all the time, waiting on their valuable crops to mature, patiently letting the rain do its slow but sure work. Be patient like that, steady and strong. Why? Because the master could arrive at any time, right? So if you are the one where you feel like you haven't gotten a fair shake at work or in your home or in a relationship, James says, hold on, just be patient, be steady and strong. You don't need that chaos and that spin and all that anger and all that strife in your life. Now, why? Because the master could arrive when? At any time. And while in some ways it feels like that's no longer true 2,000 years later, it's still true. Because you just don't know when you're going to see Jesus face to face. It might be Tuesday at noon. So, James says, because we're living in this reality where the king is coming back, don't complain about each other. There's no reason for that. Not at all, because the, the king's coming. Don't complain. A far greater complaint could be lodged against you, against any of us, you know. The judge is standing just around the corner. So, again, it's the same argument. Don't complain about each other. Why? Because Jesus is right around the corner. You're going to see him in just a little bit. 
So, so don't complain. Don't worry. Be steady. Be patient. Be strong. And above all, my beloved, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other earth, but let your yes be what? Yes. And your no be no. So that you may not fall under condemnation. Just say yes or no. Nothing more is needed. Are y'all really good at that? Anybody really good at that? And any of you guys actually travel for work? Like commute to Oklahoma City or have meetings down in Oklahoma City? Any of y'all do that? Have any of y'all ever been late to a meeting? And somebody, your boss looks at you and goes, are you late? And you go, yes. <laughs> Don't lie. I've never seen it. What we say is, what, what do you say? Traffic in Edmond. Like that's news. Or, this is my favorite, the train. Right? It's always the train in Edmond, getting out. Oh, it was the train. I got right there. Friends, the train has been running in Edmond for 50 years. Same schedule. It's true, right? You know this. And so, so the thing is, we don't like our yes being yes or our no being no because then that's just the truth about us. And we want other people to think more of us than we really are. Okay? So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because Jesus is our judge. Jesus is the one that knows. There's no sense in trying to make ourselves look better or worse or this or that than anything else. So, normally we hold the action steps for the end. But in this text, James has a whole bunch of action steps for life. And so I want to share them with you. He says this. Are any of you here hurting? Anybody here hurting? Some, some of us are, sure. He says, then we should pray. That's what we should do. Uh, that's what it says in James 5.13. If you're hurting, pray. God is ready to help you. And to heal you. And to be a part of of what you're going through. He loves you right where you are. Now for others of you, you're like, I'm not hurting. I feel great. Well, do you feel great? Then come, be a part of the community. And sing. Thank God for all that he's doing. You are a great and mighty and wonderful God. Sing to God. Sing praises to God. It changes your heart. It gives you gratitude. It also changes the other people who are hurting. Sing over them. It helps them. Many of you all uh, may remember this. Or maybe you're doing this now if you're in that season of life. Uh, where one of your little ones gets hurt. They're not really hurt, but they feel hurt, hurt their feelings. They got a boo-boo, they got a scrape, they got, you know, a knot on their head. They're going to be fine, but their feelings are hurt. They're embarrassed, they, you know, all that. You sing over your kids. You hold them and you rock them and you bless them and you sing. It's, it's a part of a great comfort in the community. You feel great? Sing. Sing over the hurting. Sing over yourself. Sing praises to God. And, and then James says, are you sick? And this is really different. Are you, are you sick, he says. And, and it's completely different today than it was in Jesus' day. Today, if you're sick, what do you do? Go to the doctor. Or, or you go to the pharmacy and you get some drugs and, and you get better. You take some antibiotics, you get better. In Jesus' day, if you're sick, what did you do? You got cast out of the community and left to die. That's what happened when you were sick. If you were lucky... Maybe you had some oil in your family home and you would put some oil on you that had some medicinal properties. But by and large, since there's no antibiotics, somebody gets sick, they get the sniffles, they're throwing up. If you go and be with them, what last thing they knew is the last guy that did that died with them. So you don't do that. If somebody's sick, you isolate them, you lock them away, you quarantine them, and that's the end of it. Now, James does something radically different that the world had not known before that. He says, if you're sick... Call the church leaders together to pray and anoint you with oil in the name of the master. 
That's radically different. Nobody did that in James' day or Jesus' day. Now, call the church leaders together to pray and anoint you with oil in the name of the, and the master. Other translations actually say lay hands on, on folks and, and bring healing into their life. Now, now, this is radically different, friends, and, and, and pretty scary for people who would hear it because everybody else in the world said no, but Jesus' people said yes. We were the people that started the Red Cross. We were the people that started the Salvation Army. We were the people that started the Helping and Healing Ministries. That's, that's what Christians do because that's who Jesus is and calls us to do. And so James says, so if you're one of the well, if you're one of the people who are well, then what you do is you go pray for them. The sick have the power to call the community together. And so the prayer of faith is the prayer of faith that's going to save the sick. And the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Not the sick person. Right? There's no judgment in that. What he's saying is when you're praying, both the sick person the person being prayed for, and the person doing the praying, all going to be forgiven. God's going to cover all of that because you're living into his will. So when you go and you bless somebody and you care for the sick, you're doing a part of what God wants, and your sins will be forgiven as well. The prayer of faith will save the sick and save the person praying for them as well. So your action steps uh, are these. Are you hurting? What do you do? If you feel good, what do you do? If you're sick, what do you do? Yeah, you call your God people to pray. Now, today... That doesn't mean call the church office and say, pray for me. We will. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what that means. There was no church building in James' day. It didn't exist, right? They were a community of people living faith out together. And so what you do is you call your God people, the people that you can count on, the people that you really know can pray. And, and it's, it's not the same, friends. Not, not every prayer is the same. God may receive it the same. God is God and God is good. But I'll, I'll speak in my own life. There are some people when they say, hey, Pastor Mark, I'll be praying for you this week. I'm thinking, no, you won't. You're just trying to get out of the conversation to get on to your next meeting. I mean, it's just an exit. Like, I'll pray for you. See you. Bye. It's kind of like bye-bye, only it's not as rude, they think. Right? But then there are other people that when they pray for me, things happen. They put their hand on my chest, and I can feel the power of God coming to me through them. I've had fevers leave me immediately, and colds go away immediately, and power come into me immediately. And sometimes it's a day later or two days later, but sometimes it happens simultaneously with the prayer. And so it makes a difference. You can be that person for someone else. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective, the Scripture says. Now, why don't we do it? Why don't we pray for people? It's very clear in Scripture. It could not be more clear. If you're sick, call for people to pray for you. If you're well, go pray for them. Why don't we do it? Normally, what happens is somebody says, well, about 10 years ago, I had a good friend of mine that had cancer, and I prayed for them, and I fasted, and I did everything that I knew to do, and they died. So I don't do that anymore. That's pretty regular. Here's the thing. We... We misunderstand if we think we're God or we're the one doing the healing, right? We do the what? Who does the healing? It's not about us, and it's not about the person we're praying for. So it's not about the person who's doing the praying, and it's not about the person who's being prayed for. It's about Jesus. So we do the what? And Jesus does the... Okay, now this is important for two reasons. One, if somebody actually does get healed, you don't get to say, oh, look what I did. You didn't do that. God did that because God is good and wonderful. We don't have that kind of power. Jesus does. And the other thing is equally important. When healing doesn't come immediately, it's not on you. 
It's not. That's God's to do. God is a perfect and loving and wonderful judge. And if God chooses to heal immediately, simultaneously, God can. If God chooses to heal a day later uh, because we're rested and we're on meds, that's good. If God chooses to bring ultimate healing by bringing you into his loving arms, that's good too. That's God's to do. So friends, please hear me. If you know you're supposed to pray for somebody, go pray for them in person. Lay your hands on them. Bless them. Be a person of blessing. And don't worry about whether the healing comes or not. That's God's to do. And you can tell the person praying, say, I don't know what God will do, but I'll be obedient. I'll pray for you because I love you because God calls me to. I will. I don't know if he will or not. That's God's to do, but I'll pray for you. Sure. I'll be here with you through this. And that'll make a difference to folks. And quite frankly, people who are really sick, they appreciate your authenticity. They appreciate that you're sober about what's going on in their life. That it's not just lip service. It's important. So we do the praying. Jesus does the healing. And then, something we all know too much about, when you sin. That's all of us, right? Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. So James says this, friends. Make this your what kind of practice? Common practice. Right? This isn't for big, hairy, horrible sins. This is for our everyday life. If you notice, all the clergy, we take communion at 915 and then we turn around and take it again at 1045. We have stepped in it between services somehow. Like we, we need God's grace all the time. You might as well. So our common practice then is to be this. We confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we can live together whole and healed because Jesus is coming on Tuesday. We want to be in right relationship with folks. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. It just is. But, so we confess to each other, but we're careful about who that is. We don't just confess to anybody. We confess to people who know the Lord and know us and love us. So we confess to each other. And this is important because is it true you confess your sins to God? Yes. But my experience is when most people confess their sins to God, they kind of make it not so bad. Jesus, please forgive me for, you know, when I wasn't exactly right in that argument with my spouse the other day. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Like, it was much worse than that. I mean, you need some serious forgiveness. And we're like, does this make sense? So, 1 John says, I think it's one of the most beautiful scriptures in all the Bible. But it's instructive, and we have to get all the words in there, not just some of them. It says, if we confess our sins, he, meaning God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. What's the key word, though? If. If. Right? Because, friends, if you come to church, and every time you come to church, it's okay some of the times, but if every time you come to church, you say, how are you doing? You're like, I'm great. Everything's perfect in my life. Yay. Then why are you here? I mean, what's the point? I mean, you can sing. You can sing over the rest of us. But really, this cleansing from sin, this new life, this power happens only if we confess. If. We confess our sins. So we need people we can do that with. It's really important. And that's where good, wonderful life comes from. And it's not for, for these big, horrible things. Like I said, it's just our normal, everyday life. I need God's help here. Will you pray for me about that? I need God's help over there. Will you pray with me about that? And life gets better, stronger, more holy in the best of sense. And then something that's really tough when this happens to us. What about if somebody wanders off? What about that? If someone wanders off from the faith, what do we do? do? Now, let me remind you, in in James' day, this was a really big deal because if you were outside of the Christian faith and you used to be a Christian, it would probably cost you your life. Because in the year 49, uh, Claudius comes to power, right after him comes Nero, 
And they did horrible things to Christians. If they could prove it, they would take you, arrest you, and kill you. And so anybody who had wandered from the faith, this was very dangerous stuff. That's still dangerous today. Um, but I want you to see what James says. He says, my dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Don't. Go after them. Get them back and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. And this is how he ends the letter. This is the very last words of the book of James. So apparently it happened. Even 16 years in, people were leaving the faith. They had faith and then they wandered off from the faith. And James says, no, no, no. Jesus is coming back on Tuesday. Get them back. They want to be here for this. This is great. They can't miss it. We, in love, we're going to go after these people. And we need to do the same thing. If you have friends who've been a part of the faith and, and they have loved God and they know the story and they have wandered off, we have a moral responsibility, an obligation to go love them and stand alongside them and, and welcome them back to the faith. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If you have friends that used to go to this church and now go to a different church, that is not what he's saying. It's not. It's not at all. If they're going to another church, that's great because they're still a part of the faith. Okay? Think about it this way. Many of you, most of you, uh, about a third of you, came from other churches when you came to us. And it would just be weird if they marched around our church and said, no, come back to our church. Right? We don't want, we don't want that. We're all on the same team. Okay, so I'm not talking about moving from church to church, Christian community, Christian community. What I'm talking about, what James is talking about, if you have somebody that's actually said no to God and their soul's in jeopardy, their life's in jeopardy, their future, their children, their generations are in jeopardy, go after them, love them and care for them. And what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, part of it, friends, is when we do this, when we go after them, the soul that we save may be our own. Because we, there's no time that we look more like Jesus then our hearts look like his and we go search out for people who are lost. We never look more like the good shepherd than when we're looking for sheep alongside him. Not to beat them, but to put them on our shoulders and then walk them home. This is our work. This is who we are as Jesus people, to, to do what he does, to love them. And, and yes, can it be hard work? Sure, sure it can. And, and I want to show you a video to, to close that I think illustrates the point well. Uh, there's a man, and his community comes around him to restore that which had been lost in his life. And as a community, friends, we can do it too. But I wanted to, you to see an example of what that might look like. Um, let's take a look. As you know, I get to meet a lot of inspiring people on the road, including a musical husband and wife who are playing their song in the face of some very long odds. To welcome us to Portland, Oregon, 67-year-old Steve Goodwin would like to play one of his songs for you. Ah. You have no idea how much he would like to play one of his songs for you. Ah. 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 What key is it in? It made me almost hate the piano. Ah. But then I realized it's not the piano's fault. I didn't know how to do this. It's this thing that's going on in my brain. How about I play something else? Three years ago, Steve was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He had to give up his job as a software designer. But his wife, Joni, says the cruelest part is the toll it's taking on the music he composed. Losing the songs would be like losing him. Steve and Joni have been married 47 years. And along the way, Steve composed more than two dozen songs, mostly for her. He played them daily and they became the soundtrack of their lives. Love you. Um, Unfortunately, 
He never wrote down most of them. No, let's see. Um... So when his memory started failing and the songs started fading, there was no way to get them back. Until a family friend, a professional pianist, offered to launch a rescue mission. I said, if he can at least play through it, even in pieces, I can learn it. And so, for the past two years, Naomi LaViolette has been reconstructing his compositions note by note. Uh, no, just on the one... The downbeat? The one downbeat, yes. We are rolling. And of course, they're recording the songs. Never to be lost again. I realized there was a part of him that wasn't going to fade away. But this may be the best part. With Naomi's help, Steve was able to write a new song. Although he forgets entire conversations and can no longer add even single-digit numbers, somehow his mind dreamed up this. Alzheimer's steals a lot, but today we score one for the beauty left behind. Sweet. Got it? <laughs> right on. You could be somebody's Naomi. You could come alongside them and know them close enough that when they're going through a hard time, you could have, can you imagine the courage that it would take to say somebody in that position, that just the pain they're in to say, would you, would you like for me to see if I could rewrite that song with you? Not knowing how long that would take or if it would work or if it was going to be a horrible trick. I love that her name's Naomi. You see, friends, with God, nothing is wasted. Nothing. No one is hopeless and no situation is beyond the loving reach of Jesus. With the love of the community together. Will you read this with me? With God, nothing is wasted, no one is hopeless, and no situation is beyond the loving reach of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us and that you care for every soul on the planet. And we pray that you would help us do our part, that you would forgive us, redeem us, um, help us make right today those we have wronged, and also help us be patient in those ways where we have been wronged that we look to you, the author and perfecter of our fate, and we thank you that we are not alone, that you are with us, the power of the Holy Spirit is with us, the love of the Father is with us, and the love of community and the power of your Christian church around the world stands with us and us with them. And we thank you, Lord, that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.